I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. everybody to episode two, uh, Circe part two. Uh, before we get going, we have a few PSAs to to put out there for everybody. Yes, we do. Um, yeah. How are you, Sadie? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm excited to record again. This is mm-hmm. just barely started and it's been a lot of fun. So looking forward to finishing up talking about Circe. I really love the second half of the book. Me too. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, so before we get going, though, uh, first want to say big thanks to my husband, Kendrick. He's doing the editing for us, and he put together um, that lovely intro song that we have, um, and that also closes out the episode. Um, so really appreciate that. Go check him out if you haven't. Um, Kendrick Zane on YouTube. He's a musician, um, does amazing, amazing covers, and has even more amazing of his own songs. So. Mm-hmm. I really recommend you go check him out. And I'm not just saying that because I'm married to him. Uh, um, So that's PSA number one. And then PSA number two, we wanted to let you know we've uh, selected our next book that we're going to be reading. It's called My Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee. Um, Really excited about this. Uh, This just came out pretty recently. I don't have the date offhand, um, but I love this author. Um, and very different from from the from Cersei. So more of a darkly humorous kind of suspenseful from from what I'm getting nice. so far. So I'm excited. I have fun. I haven't read any of the author, so I'm I'm very excited. He's great. Um, I definitely recommend any of any of his books. Um, I read a couple in in college. Uh, Native Speaker was the first book I read of his, and it's it's really good um I think it was in an Asian American lit course discovered some really great authors and he's one of them so yeah so those are PSAs so go check out Kendrick Zane on YouTube thanks to him for doing our editing and creating that song for us and also the equipment I'm using that's pretty handy to have all that at my disposal (laughs) um and then the next book we'll be reading is My Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee so go pick that up from your local bookstore if you're able to do that instead of amazon it's probably good yes we recommend um yes all right are you excited are you ready to get back into circe i am should we um do you want to do our summary and then we can share what we're what our libation is this evening yes um so in this episode we are wrapping up our discussion here we see circe on a new journey that will change her forever as she becomes a mother In this new role, Cersei learns what she can and cannot control. She faces a creature as old as the earth itself, and she defies the gods once again. As she makes peace with her past, Cersei decides to give herself a real future, one that will inevitably end. What are you drinking? Um, Well, that was an awesome summary, by the way. (laughs) Um, And I am drinking, it's a Malbec and Tanit. Um, I love Malbec wine um, from Argentina. Um, this one's from Cafe at Valley, and it's called, well, I picked it because I can't pronounce the name, so it kind of goes along with Cersei, how I can't pronounce any of these <laughs> damn names. Um, but it's called 
I believe Piatelli vineyards. Um, yeah, so it's really good. I've never had a Malbec in a tan. I've never had really, um, kind of the combos, but I love it. It's kind of vanilla-y, um, but really round. So it's delicious. Very nice. Um, I have a bit of a Frankenstein of a drink today. Oh, I cannot wait to hear about this. So Brian, my lovely partner, made me a cocktail before we started. So partner and bartender. Yes. (laughs) And I, he called this one a dolled up bramble, but I think it's probably more appropriate to call it the leftovers because it's like all the leftover things that maybe you could use in a cocktail that we had that he put in there. So it's a gin-based drink, um, and then it has some lime, and then it was muddled with blueberry and raspberry. And then he also included, oh, it's like a a violette liqueur and a blueberry caraway syrup, and then splashed a little blood orange in there as well. It's a it's a mixed bag of flavors, but uh, I, I am will say how resourceful. I like it. <laughs> well, he should like write that down and call it the Cersei. Oh my gosh, we should we should name. Our, oh my god, and then we could release our cocktails okay, get him that we to, make up. Yeah, get him to write that down in case for some reason anyone has all of those ingredients <laughs> around and wants to make that. Um, oh my god, sounds like too much work for me, but. Uh, yeah, that's, have him write that down and that's our drink, the Cersei. All right. We will write it down. Good contribution, Brian. Appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Well, awesome. So yeah, I'm really excited to finish talking about Cersei. Actually, I kind of wish we didn't really have to finish talking about it. That's one of the things about this book is Mm -hmm. I love the story so much and I love the world, um, that Madeline Miller has, has opened up and, it's definitely one of those, I think, that once it's over, you're like, oh, I want to keep reading more about her and this world that she's a part of. And it actually made me go start rereading the Odyssey. Um, so it's mm-hmm. kind of nice. I love having a book where you don't want it to end to the point where it encourages you to continue down the, that path. You yeah. know, what what else can I get into? Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely a good book for me. Yeah. As if it encourages that. Especially this last section of the book. It's I think it's like the last third of the book or something that we're talking about today. But she just goes through such another transformation in this last part of the book, which I think you will be able to speak more to than I would, um, because she becomes a mother. Yes. What and I love, you... I just love how she starts it off. Like, mm-hmm. I think it could get very... I mean, kind of how stereotypical, right? Like her lover leaves and she's pregnant. Like, I don't know, it kind of comes off as a soap opera kind of tripe. But, and she, I think she acknowledges that. She says, she starts chapter 18 and says, how would the songs frame the scene? The goddess on her lonely promontory, her lover dwindling in the distance, her eyes wet but inscrutable, cast inward to private thoughts. Beasts gather at her hem, the lindens bloom. And at the last, just before he disappears over the horizon, she lifts one hand and touches it to her belly. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a great description and sh- and so somewhat self-mocking too. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it just goes along with her theme of kind of mocking herself and all of her power and including this one to give life. Yeah, and like, just the melodrama how, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Right, like it almost made me think of like, I don't know, some 
Pride and Prejudice scene, you know, some woman on the mm-hmm. cliffs or something waiting mm-hmm. for her lover. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I love her description right off the bat of of being pregnant, of childbirth, and then of having this infant. You know, it's it's hard. Oh my God. <laughs> Reading this made me not want to do it. I'm not going to lie. It, it confirmed all my fears of pain of childbirth uh, and pregnancy. And then, you know, she doesn't really get any relief for a while. Well, first of all, there's there's a big difference between Cersei and real life, Sadie, in that there's things called drugs. Um, so oh. don't, let, don't let that stop you if you want to have a child. There's <laughs> definitely things that can be done where you don't... I mean, she has to cut her own child out of her by herself. I mean, and mm. I just thought that was such interesting how... Um, she of course is alone she's in exile but she kicks her nymphs out she makes them go home um she doesn't want anyone to be around she really this is all about her and her child and she almost puts this to me it seems a little like undue pressure on herself Mm. but there's this interesting I, i thought it was interesting to examine why why does she make this so much about just her and her baby and, and wants no one else around. And I guess part of it's, you know, she can't have Odysseus there or she doesn't have Odysseus there. The, this isn't about him. It's not about anyone else. It's her. It's her decision. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was just an interesting uh, way, to, way to look at it. And, you know, she probably could have done things to make it more pleasant for herself. But... Well, but it, she doesn't either. Well, and it kind of seems like she tries, right? Like she tries mixing up all of these like tinctures and and ointments that might help her but they they don't really have an effect like especially in the childbirth I was probably reading way too much into it but part of me almost took it like because they have so much of a talk before about how a lot of the power from her magic comes from her intent right it comes from Mm -hmm. her it's like she uses she uses the materials available to her and then it's her power and it's her intent that make them happen and make make the magic work and she carries this burden of of this magic and so part of me I read way too much into it I'm sure but it was like she it didn't help because in a way she didn't want it to help mm. I think she kind of wanted this you know to throw in another character Sisyphus like she's just constantly dealing with this and isn't getting relief mm. and I think she almost had a, I don't know I took it that way like she took a little bit of self-flagellation on herself yeah which I thought was interesting well, I guess it's the closest thing to humanity that she can experience at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, feeling the pain of it, it, the experience is something that's so relatable for human women. Um, so I guess I guess you're right. Like it, it, her, it's her fascination kind of reaching another level because she's already shown that that fascination kind of with pain. And what her body mm-hmm. can go through from the very beginning when she first like cuts her hand and she sees that she bleeds red and she doesn't bleed gold. Um, and she kind of keeps going back to that feeling of her hand, like where she cut herself. And I can I don't think you're reading too much into it. I think that's a really good insight. I guess I just yeah, want to know I, why. <laughs> you know, like uh <laughs> like why does pregnancy affect her so much differently? Cause she talks about yeah. how the other goddesses like they are beautiful and glowing when they're pregnant, but for her, it's different. Well, I think you always think that. I mean, I certainly knew when I was pregnant, I'm like, I felt like every 
picture I saw or other person I saw that was pregnant, they just looked amazing. Mm. And, and I'm like, ugh, like, I don't want, I don't have, I, th- I think there's maybe two or three pictures out there of me when I was pregnant because really? I'm like, no, I'm yeah. Like, and I think it's just perception. And then I think that goes into your psychology and how you think about yourself anyway. But I think that's pr- pretty mortal of her. Mm. Like, you know, and again, we've, they've talked a lot in this book about her perceptions and then she gets kind of confronted with what other people's perceptions are. You know, she certainly thought life was easy for Persephone mm-hmm. and then learns mm, it wasn't necessarily. So I think it's that same kind of thing. Like she kind of, she's got some negativity still about what life is like for other people, other gods, other goddesses, what, how the world works. And she's having to have that all just thrown at her. Yeah. I love how she right off the bat talks about how hard motherhood was for her though. Mm-hmm. I definitely well, related she, to that. She, yeah. She doesn't come into it easy. No. And she says that I did not go easy to motherhood. And I mean, kind of just silly throwaway line, but I love how she talks about how she, you know, she'd spent all this time with Odysseus. She thought she'd figured out, okay, what mortals need. They need three meals a day and mm-hmm. they get sick and you have to wash and clean. And she's like, I cut 20 swaddling cloths and believed I was wise and he got that got her through the first day. I was like, yeah, welcome, sister. Like, <laughs> so yeah. it's just it's funny. I love and I love just how I think it's a pretty goes on for quite a few pages. Her description of yeah. raising this child, which how, how do we pronounce this? Telegonus is his name. Tele, Telegonus sounds great. Okay, we're going with it. Again, we just need to be more confident. I know how we say it and not question ourselves out loud in front of everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I love how she talks about it and she talks about how he never seemed happy. He was always screaming and crying and it was just this battle. But in that, I mean, that's kind of what born their love, you know, and, and she, as she's talking about how hard this is, she's also just, you know, he's, she says at one point when he's just screaming all night, at least I don't worry he's dead. And then instantly, you know, claps her hand or her mouth because she knows that the God of the underworld could actually hear her. Yeah. And she's she inviting things in and like, you know, he, he will survive. And she said, I'll wrestle the veiled God himself. I mean, so I just love her description of motherhood because it's so true. It's like, my God, this is hell, but I will go through hell and back to make sure nothing mm-hmm. happens to him. Yeah. Like and if that's not a great description, I don't know what else is. Yeah. And this, this is like, I think one of the first times in all the book where we truly see like her experience anxiety and like worry because Mm -hmm. she's never had a family member that she's had to worry about like whether or not they were going to exist um yeah or cease to exist and she realizes how dangerous the world is for the first time even though she's seen people die that she's cared for that were mortal she's seen the way that the world um can really cut people down but it doesn't really click with her until she has a mortal that she's really responsible for yeah and I love it because my first time reading this book you know she's describing this anxiety about how many dangers there are and how how hard she has to work to protect her child and she starts to even realize okay this isn't normal there's you know every day there's a snake that tries to climb into his crib or Mm -hmm. there's this dangerous insect and all these things. And she's like, this is just more than, than normal and giving that mother's instinct. And then she figures out, Oh, 
there's a god that's trying to kill my child like oh my god and isn't doing it directly i know and and you've come to find out it's athena (laughs) which i was like oh that was like my favorite why does she got to be the bad guy but but again they have all sorts of facets to them and it's interesting you know you find out that athena actually is is very upset with with cersei because cersei's the reason that odysseus well she blames cersei in part for odysseus no longer out there you know going on these adventures because athena was his goddess like Mm. she he was kind of her mortal that she picked to to champion to mentor to it's almost like you know the gods have these mortals as their chess pieces and their amusement and she feels like she took odysseus away from her for a time and and so now she's got to pay for it. Give me your son and well, he'll that, be my new one. Well, that and, I mean, I think it, there's a level of uh, foresight here too, right? That she sees in mm. some way that the son is going to be a, ro- a key role into Odysseus's death and demise. Yeah. And so it's like, even though she's upset and she's angry and she's kind of lost favor with Odysseus, there's still this like really interesting level of how much she cares and kind of what a god will do for a mortal but also what they won't do for mortals it's it's all very they go back and forth don't they yeah all these unwritten rules that seem to fluctuate Mm. yeah um and then what better way to solidify how she how she feels and to strengthen herself than to have a threat presented i mean Mm -hmm. that's definitely one thing that maybe the gods don't always even though she herself is a goddess she's got such a connection with mortals and i mean have someone threaten your child or someone you care about and then see what kind of power people have. So again, here's another awakening for her, you know, her motherhood, like this book is just full of all of these things that just open doors for her and present awakenings to all of her different powers. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's in itself a power. Well, and um, yeah, that women have. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this deep love that she has for her son opens up the door for her to really see how far her power can go. The spell that she puts on the island, it's an insanely powerful spell. And it's something that she talks about how she has to be conscious about it and be willing it 100% of the time for it to work. And it's powerful enough to keep the gods away. Like Athena can't even cross into it. Yeah, what another great metaphor for like being a parent and Mm -hmm. just caring for somebody of, of creating this she creates a literal spell that makes it so that no sailors come to her island. It looks like some craggy place that Athena can't get in or any other gods or goddesses. And and it's so powerful, but it takes all of her, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's She feels the weight of it. It's like this physical weight on her to keep this spell going. And she has to, what, every something moon has to go out there and do it again. I mean, it's this never-ending sucking of her power, um, yeah. and she does it gladly. And, um, I think just really, you know, it really even increases her, her power with that, like goes over and above what she's done before stretches mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another metaphor for parenthood, like it goes largely unappreciated for of course. a really long time you know um <laughs> obviously Telegonus has his own reasons for wanting to get off the island that i think are fair obviously you wouldn't want to spend your entire life on an island and not see the world and be only with your mother he wants life just as much as she does and he wants to see the world and doesn't want to be exiled like her but 
it's pretty clear that he does underestimate her, you know, or he just doesn't appreciate what she's done, which I like, Ryan, I like him as a yeah. character, but it, it is very, he's very clearly like a child in that way. Well, and I think it brings up a point, you know, I think one of the things that's big in, in this novel is, is storytelling. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these characters mostly come from us reading the Odyssey and then, you know, she's a big storyteller and, um, she likes to hear stories and that, and that's a big thing, right? Stories are, are currency in a way, you know, that's what she wants from Hermes is give me stories of what's going on. And he wants to know her so he can tell the story of Circe. Like mm-hmm. I've met her, like just being able to tell stories is so important, but she doesn't really tell her son that many stories about mm-hmm. herself. I mean, think of all the things she could tell him yeah. that show how powerful that she is, that show how important she is really, or even just that, Hey, I've lived, I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't. And I just think that's an interesting choice. Um, I get it. It's, but it's an interesting choice that she chooses not to give him all of those stories. Because as soon as she does, right, he'll stop seeing her the same way, for better or for well, worse, maybe. you know? Like, yeah. You're re- yeah. the relationship, I, th- I think we all go through points in our lives, like, where we, we learn something about our parent that we didn't know, and all of a sudden, like, our view of them is shattered, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's really, it is for better, but sometimes it's for worse, and she's, I think, kind of terrified to see what he'll make of her when he realizes the full scope of her experience and, and you know, that's, that's relatable content right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that's true with, with most relationships, but definitely I think with a parent and a child, you know, I've, I read something once and I, I can't remember where I read it from, but it's kind of just basically saying, you know, you have these three stages with parents and children and stage one is you're a child and they're your parent and they're your whole world and they tell you what to do and they take care of you and they're all those things to you. Hopefully they do all that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the second stage is where you, you know, kind of usually in teenage years, you start to realize, Oh wait, they're people and they had lives before me and they have lives outside of me. And maybe there's things about them that I don't necessarily like or appreciate or understand. And then hopefully you move on to the third stage where you've put those two together where you see them as your parent, but you also see them as a person. And then that's when your relationships can evolve and you can have more of a friendships and respect and you can see them as fully fledged people. Mm-hmm. And if you get stuck in either stages one or two, it's, it can be really hard because those aren't necessarily the best stages to be in as a, mm-hmm. as an adult. Um, so I kind of thought about that a lot in reading this of she had to do the same thing with her father yeah. with her siblings and all these relationships you have to go through these stages to then see people who they really are and then once you see who they really are that's when really beautiful things can happen yeah i agree well so i love this other kind of part after he decides he wants to leave and she's like all right you can leave but you know I, there's some time we need to get things together and she goes down into the deep depths of the ocean mm. And I mean, what this creature is kind of like a, I kind of just pictured it like a big stingray, like a huge monstrous stingray, which (laughs) is very like peaceful sounding to me, but it's this big, powerful monster that's been around since before the Titans. And, um, she knows that it has this, you know, he has this little, I don't know, arrow shaped tip of his tail and it's this incredibly powerful magic. It could kill gods. It. I mean, it would, nothing else really does that. Yeah. And she wants to make that into a weapon for her son, 
a defense weapon, but so to try and do everything she can as his mother to make sure that when he leaves this safe island that she's created, that he he's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and because her, you know, he, he questions her, like, why do you want this? So many other people have come trying to get this, this power of mine. And she says she needs to do it for her son. And she's ready. She's willing to die or be hurt herself. He tells her, you can have it, but you have to put your hand to the venom yourself. And she willingly steps forward to do it. And he doesn't make her do it because it was her willingness enough, which I think is also a pretty typical kind of mythology thing, but yeah. works out well in this. I think I thought it mirrored um, the thing with Prometheus earlier in the book because the whole thing that makes Prometheus's gift to humanity and you know the repercussions from that meaningful is the fact that he was a god of foresight and he knew what the consequence was going to be. And mm-hmm. here Cersei is given a choice and she knows what the consequence could be. And in its eternal pain is what she would have experienced. And she's still willing to do that because of her love for, in this case, one mortal. But I thought it mirrored really well the same kind of thing that she saw from Prometheus at the beginning. Obviously, it works out better for her because she you know, doesn't have to go through that pain. But it shows her willingness no, to do it. Mm-hmm. No, it, it definitely brings that back. And I think it mirrors it, like you said. But then I also think it creates this nice juxtaposition. I mean, one of the shitty things about foresight is that you almost get to feel like you can't change anything, right? You don't mm-hmm. have choice. Like this is what's going to happen. It's all preordained. It's all destined. And that's a, that's a tricky thing. But then, you know, she's, she kind of is upset. Like she, she gets what she needs. Um, but she says, I felt the currents move. The grains of sand whispered against each other. His wings were lifting. The darkness around us shimmered with clouds of his gilded blood. Beneath my feet were the bones of a thousand years. I thought, I cannot bear this world a moment longer. And they kind of have been speaking telepathically. Mm-hmm. And he says, then child, make another. And that tied back to me what you know Prometheus says when he's telling her what mortals are like. And mm-hmm. she says, how can they stand it and as best they can? And here she is saying, I can't stand this world. Like, I can't take it. And he's like, well, it doesn't have to be this way. Make another world. Mm-hmm. And... And I just thought that was such a nice juxtaposition to, I think, previously how she'd been living her life, which was doing what she could to, you know, we've already talked about the shackles that have been put on her and how do you escape from that? How do you work around it? And I think now she's kind of presented with this new choice of you can just change it all. Like you don't have to keep yeah. living in this world and being feeling this way. You you can make a new world. You've got the power. So do it. Right. And I thought that, that was a big turning point in in the story. Well, and um, he's he's. I, He's an example of how something can be greater or like can exist outside of the order of the gods, right? Because he's older than mm-hmm. them. He's older than all of right. them. So he gives her, not just with him saying that, but like here this here is this physical example of something that exists outside of that that is greater than all of that. And it, I mean, it's just kind of confirmation that they're not the end of the world. That they don't have to be her world yeah I agree it's lovely and it's lovely and sad at the same time yeah so you know one thing I wanted to talk about is Odysseus and you know we don't really like see him directly we don't see any conversations with him directly but we get a very different picture of him as a person in this latter part of the book and 
I wanted to know what your thoughts were on it and yeah, just what your thoughts were on it and his, his relationship also with his family. Cause we meet Penelope and his son Telemachus. Yeah. So, so, um, Cersei's son comes back and she bring, he brings with him, um, Odysseus's wife, Penelope and, and his son, um, from Penelope and kind of tells the story of, you know, we're cutting out some details obviously, but he, he eventually gets to where they live and, um, he accidentally kills Odysseus. Odysseus is mm. kind of t- trying to attack him, um, not knowing who he is, obviously, but, and then he's brought Penelope and Penelope's son with him, and he just has all this guilt. And then I, they give us this description of kind of what Odysseus was like when he returned. And I thought it was interesting. It merely made me think of, uh, you know, P- PTSD. And it's like he couldn't mm. escape from this life he had on the Odyssey of you know all this war and violence and strategy and cunning and wiles and adventure and like good and bad things right but all these things that he lived for and and that's who he was and then he's he goes home and he's what's supposed to have a quiet life with his wife and his son who is incredibly smart and accomplished in his own way but it's in his own way it's it's more Mm -hmm. about taking care of their I don't know I don't want to just say house but their land everything they had and being prosperous in that way and um, trying to take care of his mother who they were also being inundated with men trying to, you know, marry his mother and, and take advantage of the fact that Odysseus wasn't there for a time. And, and her son took care of all of that in the best way he could and being confronted with his father, not necessarily being proud of him for that Mm -hmm. and for who he was. So he had this strained relationship with his son. Yeah. I mean, like it's the difference, right? Between someone who's more preoccupied with being a good ruler than being a good conqueror because Odysseus is very Mm -hmm. much like he wants to he almost kind of like the gods in a way he thrives off of the chaos that's where he Mm -hmm. shines it's where he can make a name for himself it's where he can take control um and be a hero in his own right and so he thrives off of the chaos in that way. Whereas his son, yeah, Telemachus, and, like mm-hmm. that's not what he wants in any way. Yeah. And I think when he, when Odysseus comes back and has to live this quiet life, I think not only is that a struggle because of who he is as a person, but then everything he's experienced on his odysseys, um, I create trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think it's talked about in those ways, but I, I think that it, it is, it's a trauma and it's hard to live after going through traumatic experiences into what you're now being perceived as your normal life, like, okay, all this chaos happened, all this trauma happened. You know, I thought I was never going to see my family again. And now I see my family again. And how, how do I live like that? How do you live in this quietness where you don't think, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe this is kind of a pedestrian example, but you have to deal with the fact that cars backfire, but that's not a bomb you know, or there's not a gunshot. It's like that mm-hmm. trying to create, mesh those worlds together. Well, you it, know, and that's a lot of what this book is about too, yeah. is meshing, meshing worlds, gods and mortals and, you know, being alone and being with people and parents and children. There's just all these colliding worlds. And, and that's one of them too, living that quiet life and living this life of adventure and chaos. Yeah. And it, he creates chaos in his wake because he is constantly looking for it when it's not there. It makes him really paranoid in a lot of ways, which, you know, I think is a huge sign of a like a PTSD episode, right? Is that you are seeing mm-hmm. things that aren't there or 
or you're scared that something's going to be there, that something's lurking. And and that is what creates a large amount of the chaos that, you know, Telemachus then has to endure as his son, the distrust that happens. And, you know, like, I, I think him coming back and then having a difficult time with his family just goes to show, like, we build up these expectations and then, like, nobody's going to meet them, you know? He, been, he was gone. He's building up all these expectations of what his son was going to be like. And then when he comes home, you know, his son's not the person that he built up in his head. He doesn't even know his son. Mm-hmm. And while Odysseus was gone, Telemachus is here building up, you know, this idea of who his father might have been. You know, same with Telegonus because he doesn't know his dad. So they're both building up these ideas of who Odysseus is. But there's, it's, it's just never going to be what they expect. And that makes it really difficult. Yeah, definitely. It's it's hard to con to confront truths about people. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I said, uh, Cersei's son brings back with him Penelope and her son, and and Cersei is talking to to Odysseus's other son Telemachus, and and he's kind of telling her how things were and what it was like and who Odysseus was when he returned, and and she kind of pities him, I think. Um, and but also empathizes you know she understands what it's like to be the child of of someone that maybe you don't quite understand or that was scary or that you think did you wrong and and she Mm -hmm. says you know you're not your blood do not let him take you with him and he says don't pity me you know my father lied about many things but you know he according to Timelicus he was right when he called me a coward I let him be what he was for a year raging and beating and you know he told Telemachus to to kill these men that had tried to be suitors for his mother and, and to also kill slave girls mm. who, who had laid with these men and, and he did it. Yeah. And he's like, Hey, I, I let this happen. And so I'm, I'm just as guilty. And I think she really identifies with that idea of, of doing monstrous things or mm. creating monsters or, and, and feeling like it's all tied into who you are and who your parentage yeah and how people can change like I think Cersei does a really good job here with accepting that the Odysseus she knew isn't always isn't everybody's experience with him you know because when he's telling her this stuff there are a few times where she says like she had to bite her tongue to keep from disagreeing with him like oh no that's Mm -hmm. not Odysseus she does such a good job here of really listening to Telemachus and then accepting and not arguing not defending Odysseus in any way you know she just kind of accepts it and I think that's something people really struggle with like you know as soon as you meet somebody and you make criticism of them you know to somebody else who knows them sometimes they get really defensive over that person well I never saw them behave like that or they Mm -hmm. they never treated me like that so I don't know what you're talking about but you know Cersei here I think does a good job of of actively listening listening to listen not like listening to respond yeah and then and then I think she uses that by I was talking about stories earlier then she shares stories with with Temlachus about his father that he told her and also that she just just from her observations and her relationship with him and really I think gives this Mm well-rounded you know explanation so there's the father that he thought he had there's the father that he didn't have 
you know, when Odysseus was out in his odyssey, there's the father he had when he returned. And then there's the father that he didn't know because he never, you know, was around. Here's my side of it. And I think what a gift to be able to give those stories and help, help round someone out for somebody, especially someone who's, who's struggling with reconciling what they want versus what they got. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he's able to, to kind of after the fact, maybe make peace with it, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, not necessarily like seek an apology. Cause he kind of mentions that, like that he's not really anticipating his father to tell him in the underworld that he had regrets about everything that happened. I think he kind of shows that he wants to make his own peace with it outside of that and outside of even like direct contact with him. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so she, so she meets, um, Penelope and Timelchus and her son's returned. And then of course it can't be happy endings. Right. And then you find out that, that the reason Penelope and her son left and came to her Island, um, instead of going anywhere else is because they know, uh, Penelope knows that Athena is, is after them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think Cersei's obviously kind of motherly irritated at first like why the hell did you bring this to my doorstep yeah. I already have issues with Athena I already have issues with gods like thanks so much for you know my son's back and now he's endangered again but but she gets it you know now that now that he's gone now that you know Odysseus is gone she needs she needs someone new and she says you know gods pretend to be parents but they are children clapping their hands and shouting for more you know she she really he was her favorite but he couldn't be dull and domestic. He had to live in action's eye, bright and polished, and you know, always seeking. And that delighted her. That delighted Athena. Um, and also, I think you know, she kind of looked at him as her prodigy. And mm-hmm. and now he's gone. So now she needs a replacement. And Penelope knows that that'll be Odysseus's son. And she doesn't want him to have that same fate. So now, here we come to you again, Circe, the outcast, and another person coming to her to say, "Help me." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she does. Well, and it's such a complicated, uh, interaction, right? Because it's, Cersei's the other woman, you know, she, oh yeah. Like, <laughs> it's so funny how, how naturally this is all written that you're not even like, oh, okay. So here's Penelope with her son coming to the Island of Cersei with Cersei's son and Odysseus yeah. was with both of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's, there's... I guess I'm just numb to these things after reading so many stories like this. (laughs) Well, I think that Madeline Miller writes it in a way that, you know, doesn't make that the central part of what they discuss or talk about or anything. Well, they've got bigger shit to worry about, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. And like, obviously, I think that they do kind of like lay their cards on the table. Penelope makes it really clear that Odysseus confided in her. And that Mm -hmm. he didn't hide anything about his relationship with Cersei. Like, he talked to her about it at length and, you know, really specifically and and not in anything less than, like, admirable terms. Like, he wasn't trying to hide from Penelope that he had a high regard for Cersei. And, um, And obviously Penelope, like, lays those cards on the table. She wants Cersei to know that she knows but it's in a way right. that's not really confrontational. It's just like, let's just all know we're on the same page. Well, and then they need each other, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they, they do. Penelope needs Cersei's help and protection. And Penelope needs, 
I'm sorry, and Cersei needs her son. And I think she needs that connection to Odysseus. And I think she needs to know um, that she can have a, a camaraderie in a way with Penelope and with other images. I don't think she actually likes to be alone as much as she says she's okay with it. She obviously wants uh, companionship and connection. Yeah. I think that's probably the better way to put it. She wants connection. She doesn't want companionship just for that sake, but she wants connection and and is willing to find it in maybe unlikely places. Well, and she um, and sees a connection there. Yeah, she connects with Penelope. I think in really really beautiful ways. I actually really love like the arc of their relationship. Mm-hmm. I love how um, you know she's she first starts with like admitting that you know, she knows that Penelope's great at this thing. Like, she's not afraid to compliment Penelope and then give her, you know, full reign over her loom from Daedalus. That means a lot to her, you know, something that she's really proud of. And she then, you know, interestingly serves as kind of like a mentor in the early stages of Penelope becoming the new witch of Aia that she becomes at the end, right? yeah, I love that arc. And I love it because she talks a little bit before about how her son was completely uninterested in her magic and learning about it and, you know, didn't find it interesting, which also is just like being a parent. You think the things that are cool about you, your kids could care less about. Um, <laughs> but then here Penelope is and she is interested and she seems to have this aptitude for it. And and why not? I mean, she's a woman. She was married to Odysseus. She obviously has a lot of similar qualities as mm-hmm. Cersei just in a mortal form and um i think cersei's made it clear throughout the story that this power isn't necessarily this god-given power it's this thing that's in you and um you can hone and craft and so yeah i I think that's a great a great arc um and i love i love now that we know athena is after her i just love the interactions that cersei has with athena and with Hermes, Hermes comes down first to say basically, hey, Athena wants to talk to you. She can't because you've got the spell up, so lower it. Mm. You know, do us a you know, do yourself a favor. And she's like, No. Like, nope, not doing it. And then does, but with conditions, and you don't give God's conditions. But here she is creating a new world. Mm-hmm. And she you lies, know? you know, she she she's like, Oh, it'll take mm-hmm. three days. Even though she knows and everybody knows that it's just a matter of will and she could just decide at a moment's notice and it would be taken down but she does that as like a as a gift to penelope you know from mother to mother yeah she knows penelope needs more time with her son and they have things to work out because um i think cersei thinks that Timelicus will go and now become the new you know hero for athena and she wants penelope to have that time to have that reconciliation to have that goodbye to have that I guess closure as much of you, as you can have with your son. So she lies to a god and and creates this new world, mm-hmm. um, which is I think that's kind of one of the first times we really see her being um, solid in that of like nope, not doing it how it's supposed to go. I'm doing it my way, mm-hmm. and you know, screw it. I really love her relationship with Telemachus. It's so yeah. Let's talk about that. It's so. Um, Which again, this is kind of weird. So she, just to cut to the chase, she falls in love with Timlachus and he falls in love with her. And this is Odysseus's father or son. So 
So it's like her son's half brother that she falls in love yeah, with. Yeah, I mean it's a little incestuous, but you know when is that been As all great mythology in literature? should be? I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just we're numb to it at this point. <laughs> like, oh, it's a beautiful love story. Oh. <laughs> you know, but you know when you've lived like a thousand plus years, you know what? What even is that to you at that point? Um, but I do like that they kind of like talk about how oh well, people think this is weird. The answer is yes. People do kind of think it's weird, but it's okay yeah. in this situation, I guess. Um, but I love how like effortless their relationship is and it's really unexpected. You know, like I feel like all the other trysts that she's kind of had with Daedalus or Hermes or Odysseus, it was, I don't know, it was more obvious that it was going to happen, but I was, I found myself kind of surprised by her relationship with Telemachus the first time I read it. I didn't quite mm. see it coming. See, I didn't feel surprised because I feel like it was kind of obvious that they fulfilled needs for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I think just even in how they conversed with each other, like none of her other relationships were really fulfilling, right? They they satiated her for a time pe- you know, time period, um, but they, they weren't really fulfilling. And also, I don't think she was ready. And here she is. She's ready to create this new world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he can be a part of it and, and to the point where she does something that she's talked about before, but has never dared, which is to go demand to her father that you let me off this Island. Like you do something for me. She doesn't go to him when she's raped. She doesn't go to him when she has her son. She does like, she never, she thinks about it every now and then, but doesn't do it. And then this is enough. Like her, this love that she has, I think, and this desire to, go explore this new world that she's trying to create with this partner that's enough to go to her father and be like you're gonna go to Zeus and you're gonna get me off this island and if you don't I'm gonna create a lot of shit for you yeah like and I know you're scared of me which is obvious but it wasn't obvious to her until now Mm -hmm. and it's like she is fully in her power now that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I took it yeah I guess I I just find her her hesitancy to start anything with him to be really interesting. And I guess I guess that should have been the the first flag that this was going to be like a serious long-term relationship, right? Is because it's the first time that she is hesitant about starting it. She She's careful. Yeah, yeah, she has no qualms about um jumping in with Hermes and and Daedalus even. It happened quite quickly and easily and she didn't have any questioning whether or not it should happen. And um as soon as she got to know Odysseus even a little bit, she was ready for something like that but with him I guess I don't know it's it's a the way that he talks with her I guess maybe puts her just in a more vulnerable position because he's really looking at her in a way that I guess she hasn't really experienced before yeah I agree and and that's instead of it being Um, something that she runs from even though it's scary she embraces it I mean and and because of you know then together they they travel together and she kind of her last act with with the spear Mm -hmm. that she got from the big stingray monster for lack of a better description Mm -hmm. and that was then used to call scary kill Odysseus then she uses that to kill Scylla Mm -hmm. you know she she goes out there and she puts them kind of both in danger but to try and kill Skeela and have have that be over and and she does and like how poignant is that um you know and and she doesn't have any different power necessarily she 
um, just kind of goes out there with herself and then this partner that she has now and isn't ashamed of it. You know, Mm -hmm. this is this monster she created and she's had a lot of shame and guilt for this and now she's ready to end it and and isn't ashamed to show him what she created, you know, kind of because that's part of her too is creating this monster. Yeah. Well, she finally, with ending Skyla, she's able to finally you know, kind of wash her hands of her past. I loved her conversation with her dad where she's like, okay, just do this one thing for me and you don't have to count me as your daughter or somebody that you're ashamed of. I'm not even part of your family tree anymore. Let's just yeah, wash I mean, our hands of each other. she even says, don't. Like, don't, yeah. don't include me. Like, don't count me. Like, I don't want to be associated with you. Like, mm-hmm. I have literally, she's creating this new world. Yep. And she's not going to be a part of theirs anymore. And... And hers, she's just, yeah, she's creating her, her own world. I keep harping on that, but I just think it's so, um, well, it's so important. It's such a lovely way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. She's been carrying this stuff with her for thousands of years. She's been carrying this complicated relationship with her father and her siblings, which she kind of said goodbye to a long time ago, but you know, her, her father's always been watching over her. You know, every time she watches the sun, she knows that he could be looking and she finally gets to say no. And she finally gets to rid of herself also of the responsibility of having created Skyla. That's something that she's been carrying throughout almost the entire book. And now she's she's able to just write it off and she can actually start something really fresh for herself. And she doesn't have to be weighed down by the thousands of years of history that she's had. Yeah. And I just, I love it because, you know, it it doesn't really necessarily work to try and forget about things. It doesn't necessarily work to, to replace them. Those are all short-term solutions, right? The only thing you can really do is, is start over. You know, she's, she doesn't want to be her parents. She doesn't want to be necessarily like all the other gods and goddesses, but that's all still part of her. That's part of her past. That's part of the world. She can't escape it, but she can make a new one. You know, it's like this a parallel universe they're both all existing mm-hmm. they're both real but she doesn't necessarily have to be a part of the old one anymore mm-hmm. or this other one and i just love that idea because and it was hard like it wasn't yeah. you know it wasn't magic that did that it's it's just from her own will mm-hmm. um you know she really doesn't use many of her powers to to create this new world it's it's just through her own will and um, determination and love for other people, for her son and for Penelope and for Telemachus. And, um, I think for, and for mortals. Mm-hmm. Well, and from, I think her reaching this point in her life where she realizes that her existence as a goddess is a curse in a lot of ways. And, you know, you know, her coming to terms with the fact that she would have to exist in eternity without ever seeing her son again because he's mortal um never being able to enter the underworld to be with him like she would literally be isolated from him completely and um she just you know this this closeness now that she has with mortals in a way that's really physical because of her son um creates new stakes for her and like a new Mm -hmm. uh um, like a new, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Motivation 
to create the change that she, you know, she yeah. could have done for, but she finally has that real reason to. Yeah, I agree. It's just such a lovely ending, you know, and then Penelope basically becomes the new witch of Aetis. You know, she, mm. she teaches her her spells, including what to do if men come shipwrecked on your shore. Um, she's like, cause they will. And then they'll also probably try and attack you. So here's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, So that part doesn't go away. Um, But yeah, I just, I love how it ends. I love that she creates this new world. Um, I love that it's this um, not necessarily tragic ending, but not overly um, sappy either. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's a new beginning. Well, and I love like that they give us kind of a picture of the life that Cersei can have now where Mm -hmm. she can finally kind of change and um, grow in more ways than she even has before. And she can finally see the world and, you know, it's not all going to be perfect. She's going to age and she's going to have the occasional, like, uh, narcissistic, like, anxiety about it, you know. Or Mm -hmm. she's going to go through, like, the pains of getting hurt and scarred. And it's not going to be easy, but she also is going to be able to experience so much more that she never could have before. And she can actually build a life with this other person. And again, like it'll all have all this, all the more meaning than anything she's had before because she knows it'll end. Yeah, I agree. I loved it. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about with this last part of the book? Not really. I just like, I just, again, like you said at the beginning, I just am sad it's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely good. I think it definitely, you know, you want to continue hearing the stories. And like I said, I started to reread the Odyssey because um, mm-hmm. I just remembered how much I love those stories. And, and it's fun to to take them in different formats, right? So to take the classical Homer and then, you know, to to read a book like this, to just read the Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just, it's fun to, to open that up because there's just so much connection. I mean, that's what I really like about it is just how much it connects to our, to now. I mean, this is all myth and mixed with kind of ancient history, but it's, it's just also relevant and interesting and fascinating. And, you know, these are stories that are retold in all sorts of different formats and and for good reason um, like they're so yeah exactly they're so relevant and important and enticing and you know and weird and sexy and dangerous and all yeah. of those things that people go to for entertainment so it's it's got it all wrapped up in one and that's a hard world to it's a good world to escape into yeah and it's hard to to leave it sometimes i'm really excited to see what madeline miller writes next um i think that she said that I read somewhere that the next one that she's been working on is like a retelling of The Tempest or something. It was something Shakespeare. But I'm really excited to see how she works with that because, you know, it makes so much sense for her to do the classics like Greek mythology stories because that's what she studied. Um, but it'd be interesting You're right. to she's see her. You're right. She's a retelling of The Tempest, it okay. says. Um, yeah, it'd be, correct. it'd be interesting to see kind of what she does with a whole other kind of world no yeah i'm really excited about that and then i believe they're making this into a movie i think it's an hbo series like a one season i know it's way better and it's i think it obviously fits 
this story so much better to have it in episodes yeah for sure yeah you're right hbo series i just love having the internet right here i just <laughs> I look all this up i know but we have to wait yeah for ex- so long because i i don't think they've announced anything as far as casting or anything i think they just said who the writer is going to be yeah yeah there's not really too much about when it'll be released but i'm excited about it when it is um yeah that'll be great well i loved this book i think it was a really good first one so thanks again for your recommendation um definitely has a lot gave me lots of things to think about and I'd read it before and that's one of the best things about literature is every time you read something depending on where you're at in your life or what's going on there's just new things you think about and you read it in a different way and especially when you're talking to somebody about it you know Mm, especially mm -hmm. when you're talking to somebody about it because I feel like I don't know obviously you had like different interpretations and different perspectives and um we agreed on most things, but like stuff that I would never have thought about just reading it on my own, which is why I think talking about literature is so fun. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. (laughs) We have an excuse to talk about it (laughs) and drink. Yes. Awesome. Well, yes, I, if you guys haven't, I I hope you did because it probably made our conversation more interesting to you at least, but definitely read Circe and I recommend Song of Achilles as well mm-hmm. um you don't necessarily need to one read one before the other um but Madeline Miller is great I think I've had too much wine um <laughs> and then again just to re-go over our PSAs from earlier um our next book that we're going to be reading um so we'll be starting with our next episode is My Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee um so really excited about this total 180 kind of from where we're we're at yeah um, I'm excited to talk about it and I have not read this before so this is my first time reading it it's pretty new um and then again thanks to Kendrick for our intro music mm-hmm. and editing and the audio production definitely go check him out Kendrick Zane on YouTube um I mean listen to this first but then go check him out yeah and um don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well we're at lit and libation And you can also, if you want to have a conversation with us or if you're wanting to give us feedback or suggestions, um, feel free to A, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, but you can also send us an email at litandlibation at gmail.com. Yes, and um, please, if you have a few seconds, leave us a star review. Mm -hmm. And then if you think we're horrible, go ahead and write that, but uh, also leave us the star review. That would be really nice of you. (laughs) Um, Why not? Just do us a favor. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been really fun. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and our mispronunciation of names uh, and Cersei. Um, And we will talk at you next week with a new book and a new drink. Get Brian on creating a new drink for my year. Okay. Yeah, we'll put it on our Instagram. 